welcome, welcome. This is episode 158. This is According to Callus, and it's a Monday after Thanksgiving. And some of y'all probably had a really good time with family, friends, and quite frankly, just the time off. But as it is a Monday, and I feel morally obligated, if you will, to use alliteration whenever I can, we're going to go with Moral Contradictions on a Monday. Moral Contradiction Monday, yes. So, I listed them out in a video intro, so I will not do that again in the audio. Suffice it to say, we're going to jump right in. Now, I know some of you are... uh, both afraid and aware of the phrase, unite the right. And I understand some people's motivation behind that. I I can actually respect some of the motivation behind it. Perhaps not in the way it was carried out, and perhaps not with some of the people that were involved in the Charlottesville uh, exercise. Uh, But... The reality is, is the idea behind that is we're all generally right of center. There's a lot of things that we agree upon. Why aren't we working together? And that is something that we on the right, or even those of us that would maybe have subscribed to the idea of being called a libertarian or an individualist or whatever suits your fancy as far as a descriptive term, even a constitutionalist. We respect individualism and individual rights to such a degree that it's kind of limiting or restrictive in success. And how do I mean that? Well, everybody that has their own way of thinking or has their own ideas is generally given enough grace to explore those and support those. Uh, to a point. I mean, you you can go too far. You can certainly make some people uncomfortable and then you will be kind of cast aside. Not entirely dissimilar to the idea of canceling somebody. It's just less aggressive and less offensive when it's coming from the right, generally. There are a whole lot of people that are the army of the nice. They're so worried about us upsetting those that would oppose individual rights or liberty that they're so concerned about being winsome that they're ineffective in delivering a message, that they refuse to be offensive even when it's appropriate to be offensive. Indeed, they often avoid going on the offense when it's time to be offensive. And that is not the way you are successful. But I can hear it right now. Steven, Steven but, but, but we're all different. We're not going to. Yes. All right. So that brings me on to point two. The question is, are we all the same? Well, obviously the answer is no. A little earlier today, I saw somebody that I know make a post about Ostensibly, we can't be successful unless we are all united. We're all unified. And he referenced it back to the Latinos. Or he said Hispanics, but whatever. 
um, those that are from South and Central America, unless they are all working together on the same thing, they will never be successful. Well, that depends. What are your goals? I mean, we're not all the same, so we're going to have different ideas, different opinions. I would suspect that Marco Rubio would say differently. And and I'm not a fan of Marco. Marco's been a big disappointment. But he kind of did his own thing. I mean, and Ted Cruz. I mean, I'm fairly certain Ted Cruz would disagree with that. Now, I understand what you're saying. Well, those guys are both Cuban-Americans. And, you know, the Cubans are different. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Those that fled socialism or communism to come to make a better life and knew why they fled are typically going to look at things differently than those that are migrating, looking for a better paycheck without disregarding, or I should say, let me rephrase that, without discarding the ideas and the thought processes that brought about that socialist Marxist mindset that basically ruined the countries they're fleeing from. So we're not all the same. Just a case in point. And I, and I want to be careful when I say this because I realize that as the embodiment of all that is evil in the modern American world, anything I say can and will be used against me. But for the purposes of this discussion, allow me just a little grace. So if we were to say, well, the only way that black Americans can be successful is that they rally around black Americans, there's something to be said for that. I mean, honestly, every minority group has done it somewhat successfully from the dawn of America. I mean... Jewish people looked out for Jewish people. Irish people looked out for Irish people. Italian people looked out for Italian people. Germans looked out for Germans. The English always looked out for the English. The French looked out for the French. But, uh, Stephen, those are all white people. Uh, yes and no. You, you bring up a interesting point in that we uprooted large portions of a population of an entire continent and all different kinds of tribes and groupings were part of a dysphoria and the diaspora that then showed up in the American colonies, we jumbled that all up, whether it was intentionally or unintentionally, don't know. wasn't there. Good, good arguments can be made that it was definitely on purpose. They certainly broke up families on purpose. There's no doubt about that. They probably didn't want a bunch of people from the same tribe in the same general location. Get that as well. But whether or not the intention was to do it to prevent them from having any kind of relationship or any other survival mechanism, or if it was just simple, we want the best guys in this tribe or this group of people are the best workers or the best this or best that. It seems funny to think of it that way, but that was the mindset for thousands of years. If we're going to successfully take over an area, we want to save the best and put them to work for us. The particular institution, as it began to be known in the historic South, was not unknown before that or even after that. 
But again, are we all the same? I would suspect that there's a world of difference between, I don't know, Alan Keyes or Alan West and Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. Fairly certain they want different things. Fairly certain that they have gone about it in a different way. Now you can critique six ways to Sunday, but it doesn't change the fact that they're not on the same side politically and they certainly don't think the same way. So clearly we're not the same. But for the, again, for the sake of argument, let's say that they decide they're going to put away all their differences and they're only going to worry about getting their own people elected. Now, some would say that's predominantly what's happened in certain large cities. And that has not worked out extremely well. And there's a number of reasons for that. So let's not cast the blame on any one factor. But when you do the same thing over and over again, and you get the same result, why would you not try something different? And in my mind, you know, somebody like Alan Keyes or Alan West, and those, I just use them because they're two Allens. I mean, I realize Mr. Keyes has largely been uh, quiet for the last decade, but just go with me here. Um, Those guys are examples of thinking a different way or trying to be successful in a different way or bringing a different message. But to say that they don't care about their community or they don't don't care about their people is really garbage. But again, we're not all the same way. We don't all think the same. So here we go. Now this is where I get in the dangerous territory. So we can observe that people from certain parts of Asia tend to favor other people from certain parts of Asia. I.e., if it's a Chinese person, they're going to support a Chinese person above generally anybody else. Same thing with a Korean or an Indian or a Malaysian. And again, I'm hard-pressed to find fault with that. You want somebody that looks like you or sounds like you to represent you. Now, granted, at least in this area, those are the relative newcomers, right? They're the cream of the crop of their country coming here, and they're uber successful, and everybody's clamoring for their joining of their team. And at a certain point, the idea of just raw power is going to factor into this equation. That's where you're going to have to watch out. I mean, the McKinney Impact here put out just, I want to say a month ago. Let me grab the copy I have. The 2020 census data. Now, it shows in 2020 in McKinney. It doesn't have our population accurate, but just for argument's sake, there's 200,000 people. 52% of them are self-identified as white. Now, I'm not sure how to break that up a little, you know, but who cares? Okay. 17% are Hispanic or Latino. 12%, almost 13% are black or African-American. And I'm not, whatever, but 12% are described as Asians. And then there's 
I guess some amalgamation here of roughly, let's call it four or five percent that are some other race or mixed races. Yes, because it says 4.6 for two or more races and then some other races about a half. So we're going to call it 5%. So I'm fairly certain that the Chinese don't want to be lumped in with the Koreans and the Koreans don't want to be lumped in with the Indians and the Indians don't necessarily want to be lumped in with the Pakistanis, but that's what we've done here. So let's extrapolate this out just a little more before I go on to the next topic. Are all white people the same? See, now this is where it's going to get dangerous. What if white people, and and I, I know this is the accusation, right? This is the critical theory view of things. But what if white people only worried about white people? What if they formed the structures of everything around them just to protect white people? Do you really think we would have the America of today? Do you really think we would have everything that we have today if white people were only concerned about white people? Now, I know that the counter argument, courtesy of the CRT folks, is, well, they will help the other people so long as they think there's something for them in the long term. Okay, maybe. But also consider this. For each thousand immigrants that come here, there is a hundred people, native born, that are white people. Let's, I mean, just, I'm again, making numbers up that are going to now not have a job that they might otherwise had, that are now not going to have admittance to some college somewhere that they might've had, that are now going to, in some other way, shape or form, be restricted in being successful. Now, let me ask you, if that's all I'm concerned about as a white guy, if that was the only thing white people cared about is other white people, would we be doing that? Or if white people only cared about white people, would we have the massive influx of those from south of the border coming here? I'm, I'm just asking the question. If it was so terrible and so oppressive, would people flee South and Central America to come here knowing that it's so terrible? I I, I fail to see that argument, but I suppose it could be made. Again, I'm not positing that that's a good idea. I'm not positing that that's something I want. I'm merely asking the question, is that the way we're going to play this game? Is that really what's best for America? Is it really what's best for Texas? Do we want a bunch of isolated groups only worried about themselves? Now, in some degree, it's natural. In some degree, it's understandable. I mean, when you drive down the street and you go by the Korean Baptist Church or the Chinese uh, Catholic Church or, you know, uh, what it, there's... There's a special Indian church. I cannot remember what the... It basically goes by initials. It's clearly a South Indian church. Those are all fine and dandy. I have no problem with that. It doesn't bother me in the least. I'm fairly certain there aren't a bunch of white liberals showing up there, making them feel bad for having that church service that caters to that group of people. Yet, the same cannot be said for the modern suburban white church. We are apparently all that is wrong with America because reasons. 
Well, now that I've passed the dangerous territory, let's jump right off that cliff and go into white Africans. <clears throat> yes. So, let me explain myself. When you say black people, or when you say African American people, what do you mean? Are all Africans the same? No, I'm sure if you talk to an African, they'll be quite clear and quite quick to tell you that no, um, my family's from Ghana and we're nothing like those people down in Kenya. And the people in Kenya would say, yes, but we're nothing like those people in Uganda. And the Ugandan people would say, yes, and we're nothing like those people down in Rhodesia. In many ways, this is similar to the phenomena that we see coming out of Central America or South America. The Argentinians are quick to point out that they're not Hondurans. The Hondurans are, well, maybe the Hondurans want to be Guatemalan. I don't know. But they say, we're not Guatemalan. And the Mexicans say, well, we're not this. And the Salvadorians say, well, you call me Mexican, I'm going to cut you. I mean, granted, I'm trying to have a little fun with this. But there is a huge difference between some of these groups. Even though they may look the same or sound the same, they're not the same. And they'll be quick to point it out to you. Venezuelans don't want to be confused with Brazilians either. Likewise, if you go to Africa, I'm fairly certain that you spend more than five minutes looking at the entirety of the continent that makes up Africa, you can see how vast, how huge it is. And there's essentially three distinct geographic areas. There's at least three distinct religious areas. And there's honestly a ginormous coast that makes up uh, four different coasts, essentially. So, to equate everybody in Africa as being the same is a huge monumental mistake. First of all, let's just start with the Egyptians. What do you think the Egyptians have in common with somebody from the Ivory Coast? What do you think somebody from Mauritania has that's similar to somebody, I don't know, from the Congo. Or is it realistic to expect that somebody in Chad is going to be able to relate to somebody in Kenya? Now I can name off, I, I think probably about 30 of the, I don't know, 50 some odd countries that are in the continent of Africa. And look, I wish I could name them all. I mean, I can't name all the countries in Asia either, but I can get all of South America, Central America, and North America for that matter, in Europe. And honestly, I could probably get most of uh, Southeast Asia. But I'm confident I can name the majority or place them on the map in Africa. And it's an entire continent. So go with me here now. There was a place known as South Africa. There was also a place known as Rhodesia, which is now called Zimbabwe. Although from time to time, I will still refer to it as Rhodesia. Named after Cecil Rhodes, no matter that uh, whether or not you know that is kind of irrelevant. But... Again, there's a huge difference between somebody from Somalia versus Nigeria. And if we were to break them up into the three geographic areas, I would probably say you would have 
the Sahara in North Africa, right? Which I guess starts with the West Saharan uh, district or it's not a district country, West Sahara and going all the way across to Egypt. And then you've got sub-Sahara Africa, which would be where several of the uh, little Benin and the Ivory Coast and, oh, I can't think of the other one, um, Ghana, all the way across to where I guess you would say Somalia and Ethiopia are at, but I'll get to the differences there in a minute. But generally, and then all the way south to, I guess... Mozambique, and I'm not looking at a map uh, that would make my life a whole lot easier. Um, and um, I, I want to say the country that's due north on the west coast, and I can't think of the name of it. Whatever that is of South Africa, right? And then when you when you get there, then you've got South Africa. I guess maybe Rhodesia, and there's. I'm sorry, Zimbabwe, and another country that's kind of the east of that, and then I might throw in Madagascar. Those are those are different, um, mostly just due to different things that happen. So this is where we're going with this. So North Africa is predominantly Muslim, right? So you've got your three geographic areas, and now you're going to get into your three predominant religious areas, if you will. So you've got the North and the east portion, uh, northeast, which is predominantly Muslim. And let's be honest, very few of those people chose to become Muslim. They may have been born Muslim, but most of them were just part of Dar al-Islam, right? They were converted through conquest. And then you've got the kind of the central area, which is a mix of Christianity and some of the what they would call animism. And those are, you know, from everywhere south of North Africa and that, with the exception of the eastern chunk there that's primarily Islamic. Those are your three general um, delineations, if you will. So now when I talk about white Africans, I'm not talking about Egyptians, although there's a good argument to be made there. And I'm not talking about the Arab Africans that are most of North Africa. I'm really talking about the people that are in Rhodesia slash Zimbabwe and the South Africa in general, and I guess maybe parts of Madagascar and the um, former hmm, Dutch states, right? The Boers. Now, there have been white people that have colonized and lived there for over 400 years. Now, do they get to claim to be Africans? I mean, they're white people. They live in the continent of Africa. It seems to me they would be white Africans. I mean, if I took Africans and I moved them over to America and they're there for 400 years as well, they're black Americans or African Americans why couldn't they be white Africans? I mean, it is a little contradictory there, right? Just like we have people trying to preach that we're all the same, which is a contradiction class, clearly not true. Just because people say that there is a idea of what an African is clearly is not true. 
So let's go on to point four. And I, I know I took a lot of time just to get to point three, but after the amount of time that I put on all were the same, I just want to make sure that I'm being clear that I'm following a line of progression here. There, there are multiple contradictions going on here, and there's moral confusion as well as a contradiction here because what's what? How do you accurately define something? And is it fair or is there a specific expectation that is being put upon you because of the way you look or way you sound. I don't know. So let's go to the next thing. Anti-American Americans. So when you have the proposition nation, right? When you say we're all Americans because we believe in this, we're all Americans because we're born here, or we're all Americans because we think we're Americans, we're changing the definition. Now, the founding fathers would have said their posterity, which generally would be looked upon as the people that followed them directly. Now, I know that there are some of my, uh, let's say, left of center friends that would take great offense at this and they would say that, well, you only meant white people or you only meant white males or you only, okay, fine, whatever. But I think it was understood at the time that everybody that was in the colonies, everybody that lived in the colonies, everybody that was a citizen of the colony. And I know that's kind of a touchy word there, but just go with me. Everybody that was present was to become an American. Now, there are some that would clearly point out there is a huge difference between a Virginian, a Georgian, and a Yankee. And then, of course, there's a huge division between people that were in uh, servitude, a.k.a. slavery, and freemen. And let's not even forget about the small contingent of Spanish that were still around. And by Spanish, I mean Spain, Spanish, predominantly down in Florida and Louisiana. And then, of course, there were the French that were still thinking they were part of France or New France. And then there's Dutch and Germans and various other groups. But predominantly, it was thought of as to be English, which the English would include, because it's Great Britain, the Welsh, to a lesser extent the Irish, and definitely the Scottish, right? And then, of course, there's a book that I've heard of. I've not yet read it, but I've heard of it multiple times from none other than Brian McClanahan called Albion Seed. And it gives the four distinct territorial areas where English settlers set up shop and created their very own cultures. So all these people became Americans, but they were all a different flavor. And like in Texas, for example, when they invited the white people to come down to what was formerly North Mexico, which coincidentally was run by Spaniards and they had interbred themselves and created mazitos. I believe that's the proper way to say that. Please forgive me if I've got that wrong. Again, extend a little bit of grace. When we came down to Texas, predominantly from the South, a large contingent from Tennessee, then you had two distinct cultures just in Texas, the Texians and the Tejanos. And they formed their own country. And then that country decided to join the larger country, and then decided to secede against some recommendations against doing that by none other than Sam Houston. And then they rejoined 
the Union. So all these people get to classify themselves as Americans. But one of the things that's unique about America is each state, as it joins the Union, is supposed to guarantee a Republican form of government. Now, again, there's maybe ways to split hairs or argue what it means to have a Republican form of government, but just the idea that you're going to have a representative group of people that go and serve the general public. Interestingly enough, when you have people that are advocating for Marxist or socialist or flat out communist ideas and ways to do things, how are they not anti-American? I mean, to be an American means that you are guaranteeing a Republican form of government, but if you're seeking to undermine that and destroy that and not even recognize personal property, that's a problem. That's anti-American. Yet these people run around like they're good Americans and that they're taking advantage of the way we've set up the country. And honestly, I don't really have an issue with that. There is a right to protest. There is a right to gather. There is a right to seek and redress against the government. There's a way to worship. There's a way to, you know, articulate your issues. These are all covered in just the First Amendment. If you're not able to allow for other people to do these things, you're violating the very precept. But they know this. They're smart. And they abuse it and take advantage of it. And yet we have not found an adequate resource or an adequate way to deal with this. Now, I'm I'm going to say that I was not unaware of this. It wasn't something that I hadn't thought of or hadn't been mm, at least mm, aware of. But I read the book 444 by uh, Renee Holiday. And one of the precepts she gets in there is the idea that there's a guaranteed form of government. Constitutionally required, if you will. And if that government violates that, or does away with it, they're in violation of the Constitution, and they need to be dealt with. So when you have a governor that issues dictatorial decrees, whether you agree with them or not, he's violated the Constitution, or she's violated the Constitution, Whitmer. When you have a state legislature that routinely does whatever they want without regard to what the people want, California, or purposely punishes people that disagree with certain things, New Jersey, New York, Illinois, uh, you can't put up with these things forever. And even in the great sovereign state of Texas, we've had these very things happen and we're just waiting because they quite haven't crossed the line of no return. But we need to remind them that they don't get to be Texans forever if they're anti-American Americans. They will be dealt with. There are ways short of what some people want, which I don't, but there are ways of dealing with it in a proper legal way. Then that brings me to the last thing, and I guess I'm going to have to be very short because I'm in danger of going too long here. The Antichrist Christians. Now, I've talked about this before, and the idea that Christ is above all if you claim to be a Christian. Now, if you don't, you know, maybe you press stop or you fast forward to the end here. That's fine. You're not going to hurt my feelings. But this is just going out to whatever listener may claim to be a Christian. 
if you are a Christian, you're not supposed to have other idols. You're not supposed to worship something other than the Lord your God. But when you put government up on that pedestal, when you put individuals within the government up on that pedestal, and you don't question them, and you follow their rules, and you do what they say without questioning it, and you obey them over God, how is that not worshiping an idol? How is that not antichrist? If you go to a church and they're still not open, you need to find a new church. If you go to a church and they are more concerned about what the government thinks than what God thinks, you need to find another church. If you go to a church and you're being preached another gospel, you need to find another church. All those are simple and easy ways to determine whether or not somebody is an antichrist Christian. Now, the problem is in our evangelical church world, we're full of squishes. A guy by the name of Douglas Wilson calls them evangelifish. They have no spine. They have no matter that forms a place to stand. They're just squishes. And honestly... When I look at the shape of the world today, when I look at America today, and I look at our churches as a whole, not wishing to cast stones particularly at any local church that I have or currently attend, but just go with me here. As a whole, when our leadership is going out there and they're more concerned about sins that aren't necessarily spelled out in the Bible as being sin, when they're more concerned about social justice, Perhaps they're teaching another gospel. Perhaps they're more concerned about what man thinks than what God thinks. Perhaps they need to find a different vocation or you need to find a different church. And that's the contradiction, right? They get to claim and define what a Christian is, but we can see clearly from their actions, from their fruit, that James would say otherwise. Well, I'm going to wrap it up. In closing, each one of these contradictions, each one of these questions, if you will, each one of these concerns that I've laid out, they are directly tied together. They're designed to build upon each other. They are explicitly there to get you to think. I'm not trying to tell you what the best answer is, though I have my own ideas. I'm not trying to convict any individual or any group per se. I'm trying to get you to think. I'm trying to get you to put the time in and consider what are you seeing, what are you hearing versus what is true. And when somebody tells you you can't know truth, or when somebody tells you when that person has a different point of view on this biblical truth, I think it's referred to as standpoint episiology. Whatever. They are violating biblical truth. They are the problem. Likewise, when somebody tells you, yes, the Constitution says this, but this is what we think it really means, they're violating the Constitution. They're the problem. You're not. When somebody goes and upends the entire world, the entire culture that we belong to, and then claims because you're upset about it that you're the problem and you're the one being divisive, you just need to tell them, no, you move. And that, my friends, 
is the end of the episode. This was According to Callus. I will see you on the other side.